We're pleased to partner again with Curex, the number one insole in the run specialty retail market, which means in running stores, it's the top selling brand of insoles. It's no wonder. Curex insoles are highly customizable and provide dynamic arch support. For 15% off, visit curex.us and use code AMR15. Give your dad the most meaningful gift this year and get started right away without the need for shipping by going to storyworth.com AMR to get $10 off your first purchase. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined by Liz Waterstrot. Hello, Liz. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Doing great. Good. Good. So what is what is new and exciting in your life? This past weekend, I took a trip to Alabama. <laughs> do, do you want to know what I was doing there? Sure, sure. Uh, I did a race, a real oh. in-person race. Wow. And was it a triathlon? No, it was a duathlon, mm-hmm. which is run by Grun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so funny because I think of you almost first and foremost as a swimmer. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. Before I was a swimmer, though, I was a runner. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, um, but you always seem to be working on your swimming, and you also post very cute pictures of you oh. in in your swimsuit. So oh, I'm a big I'm a big fan of the loud uh, neon flowery swimsuits. Yes. So, so that's yeah. why. Yes. I was inspired by one of your pictures, but I can't do those thin straps on um, swimsuits. I have to have the wider ones because those ones that are only about a centimeter wide just dig into my lats. Yeah. Well, maybe you should tone those lats down a little bit. (laughs) Well, you know, it's hard to be so buff. What can I say? (laughs) It's just so hard to be Sarah. (laughs) You can't see me, but I'm doing that. We're going to pump you up move. Um, (laughs) So, okay. So Alabama for a duathlon, how did it go? It went great. Podium? Podium? Uh, yes. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really good. It was, um, it was fast and hard and it started at 1 PM and it was 90 degrees (laughs) and windy and hilly. It was everything you want from a race. You know, you want a race to stretch you and, and to put you in your zone of discomfort. And it, it sure did. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And, and the whole trip to Alabama was a zone of discomfort for me. (laughs) because It's, it's an entire state of extroverts. I am not. (laughs) Oh, stop. Stop with the labels. Come on. Well, but it's just this, this warm chattiness that is different because I'm very introverted and I don't really interact with a lot of people outside of my family. And I was in a hotel staying on the fourth floor. So it involved an elevator ride. And I'm telling you, every elevator ride was just like this long conversation with a stranger. And it's, by the, it's four yeah. floors, Liz. It's four no, floors. No, it was a really slow elevator. And, you know, it was like conversations where I knew their grandkids' names and birth dates. And, <laughs> oh, my goodness. By the end, I, I started taking the stairs. You did not. I you did not. Enough. It was a lot of talking for me. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Stop, but you're so convivial on the mic. What's up with that? That's okay. I, but I do enjoy my quiet. And I was traveling by myself, which mm. was lovely after pretty much spending an entire year with my family in my house. Mm-hmm. It was, it was so nice to just be by myself and be on my own schedule, 
go yeah. my own way. Yeah. Although, although I was, I went for a hike at the local Arboretum and, and I thought to myself, there, there was nobody else there. And it was really eerie. Like everything was kind of closed down at it. And I was like, this is going to be like a true crime podcast. Right. You know, right. middle-aged woman goes hiking in Alabama woods on the sumac trail, like dead in Alabama is what it's going to be called. <laughs> and I turned around because I thought my mom's going to kill me if she knew I was out here alone. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You know, it's bad when you're like, oh, this is a, po- this is a podcast waiting to happen. <laughs> like I had to drive down a long gravel road one way to get to the trailhead. I hope there was some Spanish moss hanging from the trees that always caught, you know, creates an eerie atmosphere. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So, but you back to the race, you podiumed. Uh, that is very impressive. Congratulations um, you. for your age trooper overall. Uh, I suppose both. I was third in my age group and fifth overall. Sweet. Yeah, it was, it was hard and you know, it doesn't get any easier on the body. Like just yesterday, my hamstrings were still cramping. (laughs) Three or four days later. (laughs) I I was at the garden center pulling a wagon of flowers and my hamstring just cramped. (laughs) And this woman in front of me, she was a bit older, white hair. And she turns around, she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm not moving any faster. And I was like, I couldn't even move fast if I wanted to. Like holding my hamstring together right now. Do you have some tape or a stapler, please? (laughs) I need like a threaded needle. Sew it it back together, someone. Oh my goodness. And what was the distance of the race? It was not very far, but it was just hard. Uh, It was a 5K up front Mm -hmm. and then a 20K on the bike. So that's about 12 miles. And then really random, a 2.9K after (laughs) the bike. So, I mean, it was only five miles of running, but yet it was still five miles of running hard in the heat. Yeah. And why did it start so late? Were there waves beforehand? There were, there was another race beforehand. So they just decided to start us in the middle of the day, which was weird. Like, when do you eat, when do you eat pre-race breakfast? Mm. And when do you do, well, well that, I mean, I had plenty of time to take care of that, but (laughs) how many coffees do you need to have? I mean, by 10 AM, I was sitting there like I'm over this and ready to race right now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So that's very exciting. And how long was the drive from you live outside of Chicago for folks who don't remember? How long was the drive to Alabama? Well, I flew there. Oh, you flew there. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah I'm, not, I I'm just not real driven. sharp on my geography. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's about a 10 hour drive. And, and oh, you know, by okay. the time, by the time you do all the airport stuff and you pick mm-hmm. up a rental car and I had to drive an hour from Birmingham to Tuscaloosa, it was mm. like, I should have just driven the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Wow. Well, that's exciting. And then, I mean, now you're in recovery mode and then what's next on your race horizon? I'm not racing again until August. It'll, uh, it'll take my hamstrings that long to heal. I think. (laughs) (laughs) will not. (laughs) No, no, I've got a, I've got a ways to go before my next race. Well, that's exciting. Well, I am, we're recording this before Memorial day weekend and I am very excited. I'm emceeing at a race. I've talked about on a couple different episodes um the happy girls bend half marathon and there's a 5k and maybe there's some other distance in there too but yeah so that'll be my um return to live in-person racing yeah so that's 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 this weekend Mm -hmm. yeah that's on as we're recording that's on saturday yes and uh we're gonna be selling and i so i recruited two mother runners to help out the booth because 
Um, I realized that relying on my teenagers to help was just really <laughs> not a good idea. It was not going to happen. They'd be like, after 15 minutes, they'd probably be like, um, yeah, can we leave now? Like, uh, <laughs> I, we've been here an hour and a half, mom. Can we leave? Um, no, you got here at 11 and it's 1110. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and then we're spending the weekend in Bend, which is a lovely um, yes. central Oregon uh, town, city, I guess, um, in the high desert. So yeah. fun. All right, Liz. Well, I think it's time that we introduce our topic. It is because it is a long awaited topic. Uh, a lot of people have been asking for it. It is menopause. We've certainly spent time on the topic before, but this episode grabs the topic by the um, short hairs. Our esteemed guest is Dr. Jen Gunter, author of a book debuting later this month called The Menopause Manifesto. It is a much anticipated follow-up to her best-selling book, The Vagina Bible. Yes, I suspect we'll be tossing around lady part words during this episode uh, to whoever um, might feel uncomfortable with that. Um, Dr. Gunter is an OBGYN and pain medicine physician, as well as a fierce advocate for women's health. She's the mother of two sons and a third who died at birth. We're delighted to have Dr. Gunter joining us. Stay with us for that conversation. Curex, the final step to better running. Last summer, I told you about Curex insoles, the number one insole in the run specialty retail market, which means at running stores, it's the top selling brand of insoles. It's no wonder. Curex Run Pro insoles are highly customizable and provide dynamic arch support. I know there are a lot of add to your shoe options, yet insoles shouldn't be just cushioning and shouldn't only be stiff like custom orthotics. Curex delivers the best of both these options. Curex Run Pro insoles have flexible support with just the right level of rigidity. They have a thin, low profile, yet still deliver maximum support and comfort. Curex Run Pro insoles are available in three profiles, high, medium, and low. I have high arches, so my feet, knees, hips, and back are grateful. I added Curex Run Pro insoles to my shoes. Here I am, a runner of a more advanced age, yet I'm injury-free and have been for a while. I don't think it's any coincidence. Once you become a believer in Curex Run Pro insoles, you'll want to check out the brand's other options. Curex offers the largest line of sport activity-specific insoles, from Cleat Pro for soccer or baseball, Hike Pro for hiking, support set for walkers, even Work Pro for all-day wear for those on-their-feet professions, plus tennis, golf, hockey, and skiing too. Try Curex risk-free today. The company offers a 60-day warranty, even if the product has been cut to fit your shoes. Visit curex.us and use code AMR15 for 15% off a pair of Curex insoles. That's C-U-R-R-E-X dot U-S with code AMR15 for 15% off. Curex.us with code AMR15. If there's ever been a year to make the dads in your life feel loved and appreciated on Father's Day, it's this one. Let's be honest, the fathers in our lives were an even more important part of our team this year in handling the extra demands of homeschooling, schedule shuffling, and much more. That's why I'm honoring the fathers in my life with a heartfelt, sentimental gift the whole family can enjoy together forever. StoryWorth. StoryWorth is offering $10 off your first purchase at storyworth.com AMR. Here's how it works. Every week, StoryWorth emails dad with a different thought-provoking question. Questions you've never thought to ask, like what were your favorite subjects in high school? Or do you believe in a higher power? And there's no shortage of surprises when reading the weekly stories. Who knew my father-in-law's favorite subjects were chemistry and art? What a mix! 
Reading his stories brings us closer to him and helps us know all the pieces of his personality and life he's never thought to share with us before. After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your dad's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that's shipped for free. What a meaningful way to not only celebrate Father's Day, but celebrate your dad every day with a book the whole family can read and enjoy. Give your dad the most meaningful gift of Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash AMR. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash AMR for $10 off. Welcome, Dr. Jen. We are delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here, Dr. Jen. So we're wondering, what do you do for fitness and staying active? Sure. Uh, so I normally I, I'm a runner, uh, and during the pandemic, though, at the beginning, like I think a lot of people, I didn't really leave my house very much for a long time. So I sort of turned into a piece of veal. I think I just didn't <laughs> actually move at all. Uh, and so it's amazing at 54 how uh, just three months of not doing much, all of a sudden your body isn't what it was at all. Like it, it goes downhill really quickly. So, um, actually I got back into weights, uh, and I'm working on resistance training right now and, uh, back into running and biking. Nice. Very nice. 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 So as we dive into the topic of menopause, I want to start on a personal note. Um, I went through what seemed to me at the time an earlier than usual menopause at around 47 or so. I can't exactly remember when I crossed that finish line. Um, And I remember feeling really alone and embarrassed, like somehow I was defective and and that I had like one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. So, you know, what's, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think that's a really, first of all, common, uh, common feeling. A lot of women feel that either that there's shame or irrelevance or that, you know, they're basically you've got your exit ticket and you're just like waiting. (laughs) Um, And so I think that's a very common thing. You know, 47 is a little bit on the early side, but, but not, you know, not super, super early, but you know, the average age is 51. So definitely on the earlier side, uh, but not unheard of at all. But yeah, your, your symptom, your, the way you felt is I think really almost universal, which is one of the reasons that drove me to write this book. Interesting. So I would say that when I turned maybe 38 or 40, I started to just notice a change, like a shift in everything. And I think that's one of the things that surprised me is how few women understand that menopause is, is not a, a date. It's a, it's a transition. It's a process. So can you, you know, can you speak to that? How, how long does this process take? When does it typically start? Right. I, this gets back to, I think, us as a society doing such a dismal job of really explaining reproductive biology or the biology of the uterus and the ovaries. And, uh, you know, we all expect that puberty takes years, right? Like no one expects that, oh, puberty's three days and then all of a sudden you're an adult, right? <laughs> like we're, we're very used to this concept of slow changes that might start and stop and sometimes be faster and sometimes be slower, right? Growth spurts, then nothing, acne for six months, then not too bad. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're all used to that concept. And, and menopause is really a mirror of that in many ways. So instead of the ovarian function ramping up, it's the ovarian function ramping down. 
So if the average age of menopause is in between 50 and 52, uh, what happens before that, that time that you alluded to where things just kind of felt like they were a little bit different is the menopause transition. And that is basically the reverse part of puberty that's heading into it. And there can be false starts. Uh, you know, the, some people have clockwork periods really right up until a few months before their final period. And other women have this really meandering starting and stopping. Oh, let's go down this path. Oh, this path, you know, so it's, I, I usually tell people the only thing predictable about the menopause transition is that it's unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I remember I, um, you know, I'd read that it, you're in, you're in menopause or whatever, when you haven't had your period for a year. And I was like 11 months. And then I had a period. I'm like, Oh, come on. I have to, it's like shoots yeah. and ladders. I have to go all the way back to the start again. <laughs> I know it's very frustrating. It's like, I call it the great menstrual weight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we should have like a party when you hit your 12, you have to have like a crossing the crimson bridge party. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I can see the balloons already. So. <laughs> I mean that, and that's the thing is that it's, it's, it is very frustrating. I also then get people to think back again to puberty. You didn't no, you were an adult until you were a couple of years into the process, right? Like you're, even when you were three or four years after your period started, your body was still undergoing some changes, right? Like fat re redistribution and maybe still shifts in muscle mass and things like that and brain development. So, you know, we are used to that concept of it, of it taking a while and, you know, not really knowing it's happened until you look back. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, what are some of the symptoms that, you know, can kind of, um, that women can expect during menopause, especially symptoms that apply to women runners, if they're, you know, active women who might notice them more than uh, sedentary women. Well, actually active women are, are going to be protected against some of the health, uh, the health downsides of menopause you know, uh, when you go into the menopause transition that starts a cascade of events that increases the loss of mass. And that also increases the risk of type two diabetes and depositing visceral fat, the fat that's around the organs, which is the most harmful fat. Hmm. And exercise is actually one of the protective mechanisms against that because it helps slow down the loss of muscle mass. So runners are, are, you know, are doing what they can, you know, they're, they're already taking on good preventative care, but as for symptoms, um, you know, the most common symptoms are menstrual irregularity and hot flushes, night sweat, brain fog, and, um, and, uh, depression can also be triggered. These things don't happen to everybody, but again, being physically active is one of the most helpful things for any of the symptoms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Dr. Janice, you indicated, you know, that, um, menopause is a process. It's not, you know, an on off switch that takes one day. And I know that as I was going through the menopause struggle that I talked about earlier, I really thought that all the changes, you know, the mood swings, the forgetfulness, which, oh God, that bedeviled me, um, you know, the vaginal dryness, all that stuff. I thought they'd be permanent. And I was pleased to discover that all those changes aren't like, I can now grasp words and names that, you know, I, I still struggle a little bit sometimes, but it, it was bad there for a while. So can you talk about how long menopause usually takes and, and if some of the symptoms are indeed temporary? So I think I'm really glad you brought that up because brain fog, the symptoms that you described are, are something that is common that happens in the menopause transition and, you know, it can last for a few years. 
years. Obviously, it's different person to person, but it's temporary. It's not a sign that something bad is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I always tell people it's worrying to have the symptoms, but it's not worrisome. Oh, Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, so I understand that people, it makes people feel, you know, that they're off kilter, but there's so many changes happening in the hormones and in your brain, just like during puberty, right. Mm -hmm. That is almost like your brain is uploading a new operating system and it's a little glitchy when that's happening. And then once it's kind of all uploaded and running smoothly, that goes away. And the thing that I think comforts a lot of women is, you know, this has been studied. So this isn't something that doctors are just being all paid, you know, patriarchal about and saying, there, there, little dear, it'll go away. You know, doctors have taken women's concerns seriously and looked at brain fog. And so we know it's temporary. And interestingly, one study compared women in the menopause transition with brain fog to men and the women still outperformed the men. Sweet. <laughs> So what I'm saying is you got a lot in reserve. <laughs> I tell you though, for a while there, I was just like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I have it at had an aunt that had terrible Alzheimer's. I'm like, oh, following in Aunt Mary's footsteps. I really need to go see a doctor about this. But, you know, I didn't want to hear the doctor give me a diagnosis. So I'm like, no, just going to ignore it. I'm just going to ignore it. And yeah. So, yeah. And that's the, that's the reason to know about what, what's happening to your body, right? So you just like everybody's heard about like mood swings during puberty, right? So if you've had mood swings during puberty, you know, you're not thinking that, that you need to go to the doctor. You're thinking I'm having puberty related mood swings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's so much interest in this topic in our community. Uh, we, we asked for some questions on the Facebook page. And so we're going to roll into those and we'll start with Jessica's question, which really takes it back to the basics. Uh, and she was wondering when the heck does perimenopause start and how do you know you're in it? So, you know, perimenopause is one of those things that you don't know you're in it. And that's the menopause transition until you're in it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you've realized that, oh, you know, you've had like four or five funky periods or you've had a few hot flushes here and there, or maybe you've had some, you know, you're just not sleeping as well, you know, looking back and thinking, oh, this is a definite change from three or four years ago. Well, then you're probably in the menopause transition, but it's one of those things that you won't really know until you're in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this question comes from a different Sarah. And, and again, a lot of the people in our audience use the term perimenopause. So we mm -hmm. will school them on using the phrase menopause transition. I wrote it down. Um, so this other Sarah says that she's going through perimenopause and she says, I'm always interested in hearing what other women are going through. I'm kind of all over the place right now. Many warming flashes spotting through the months, severe cramps, no cycle for months, then a heavy long cycle. So she wants to know it's normal. And she said that she's was on the pill for years and appreciated knowing her pattern. She says, now I'm off the pill and your guess is as good as mine. Right. So that sounds all very normal. So periods can be exactly like that. And you know, the, when people have enjoyed the regularity of the birth control pill, it sometimes is even more of a shock, right? The sort of, because the, the birth control pill, you know, is going to give you a clockwork like period so that the switch between one and the other can be really dramatic for some people, but those all sound like pretty typical symptoms. And uh, obviously if the bleeding is very heavy or it's bothersome, you know, then there are medical treatments. So Courtney has a question, and, and this echoes my own experience too. 
Her question is, why in the actual hell is my menstrual cycle turning back into a teenager? Other than hormonal-based medications or sucking it up, is there anything that can be done? Well, I'm not exactly sure what she means by a teenager. So I'm going to assume maybe heavy periods or irregular periods. Uh, so the best way to control the menstrual cycle, if it's bothersome, is our hormonal medications for irregularity. There's nothing else that can take an irregular cycle and make it regular than hormones. That, that's really all there is. But if you're having heavy periods, um, then depending on how heavy, there are other treatments. You know, there's a treatment called an endometrial ablation where we burn out the lining of the uterus. There is also a medication that you can take for um, five days of the month the amount of bleeding if it's heavy. Uh, that's a non-hormonal medication. So there definitely are other options. And then in the hormonal sort of category, there's also the IUD with the hormone progestin in it. So you're not getting as much in your bloodstream if that's something that matters to people. And that can take periods away for a lot of people even. Uh, I, I will say personal experience. I chose one of those options. I chose the medication the, that you take for a few days at the start of your period. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was life-changing. So if yeah. there are women out there struggling with heavy periods, as you start to go through this transition and you're feeling like you're at the end of the rope, that was such a great option. And really, I, I don't see any downside to it myself. You know, it's unfortunately, you know, the, uh, the medication, um, and it's called, uh, tranamexic acid is, um, you know, is really underprescribed and, um, you know, it's great because you're just taking it, you know, for five days at the start of bleeding and, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, slows, just slows down the bleeding. So a lot of people like the idea of a on-demand treatment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I also think that things, ch it seems to me that things change pretty quickly. Like I remember when I was going through it, my doctor was very much like, well, I don't prescribe hormones. You know, that's just not something I do. So basically, and I love my doctor. She basically was like, just suck it up. And <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of this sort of fear of hormones happened because of this study called the Women's Health Initiative, which I go into great detail in the book. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really helpful for understand that the study was not as catastrophically bad as it was portrayed. Mm. But the downside of it is it frightened a lot of physicians and, and patients and led to probably, you know, two generations of doctors raised, if you will, during their training where they were advised hormones were dangerous. You know, so somebody like me who trained before the Women's Health Initiative, when it came out, you know, there was a bit of a a, a pause where it was like, oh my God, what, what are these results? We, we got to get this figured out. But as soon as, you know, the medical professional societies had statements and were, you know, sort of back on board with, with the information, which, you know, was, was several months, but not too long. Um, you know, I felt comfortable prescribing again because I'd been comfortable prescribing it before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a woman named Jody has um, a question that's kind of period adjacent. Uh, so she said that uh, she wants to know what, besides medication, what would help with, with the week? She says the week prior to her period, she feels so anxious, overwhelmed, depressed, and struggles with body dysmorphia all at the same time. And um, she says it starts about four or so days before and then gets progressively worse until her period starts. And then as soon as her period starts, it's, she says it uh, goes away like a huge wave and she feels so much better. And 
on Facebook, so many people like, you know, pressed like, or, you know, said me too, me too, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So. Yeah. So she's describing some pretty classic PMS symptoms, Mm -hmm. right? Premenstrual syndrome. And for some women that can actually get worse during the menopause transition. And uh, often it's because sometimes for women, a little bit shorter. And uh, when that happens, when the cycle gets shorter, it's the front part of the cycle that gets shortened. So basically more of the cycle you're spending in in your ovulatory phase, your luteal phase, and that's when PMS symptoms are the worst. So you kind of get less of a reprieve, but also, you know, PMS is hormonally driven. And so your hormones are out of whack. And so, yeah, so we definitely see that, you know, PMS, some people respond to uh, birth control pills. Um, Other people respond to, there's a couple of different antidepressants, which just given for the second half of the cycle. So you're not taking it every day of the month. And that that really appeals to some people as well. So now we have a few, uh, what I would call runner specific questions. And Cheryl says, I'm in perimenopause. My run has turned into a walk, just no energy. Is this normal and will it go away? Um, you know, that's a really hard question to, to answer uh, because there's so many factors that can go into fatigue. And so without having a full history and being able to talk to someone in the office, it's hard to give it much advice. But I would say that, uh, you know, you'd want to look at sleep quality perhaps as a cause of fatigue. And so I, you know, I'd want, um, want her to be screened for uh, sleep apnea, perhaps mm. also ask about hot flushes. Maybe she's having them at night and doesn't actually think it's that bad, but it's waking her up two or three times. Menopause, the menopause transition can also sometimes trigger depression. So it'd be good to be screened for depression because that can also lead to fatigue. And then there's other medical conditions people can develop right around that time. And so it could be completely unrelated to menopause. You develop a thyroid condition or something else. And finally, there's been an awful lot going on in the world and sort of the anxiety and weight of the last 18 months may also be having an impact. So I would say, you know, it's probably complicated and probably related to more than one thing and something that, you know, to sit down with your doctor and to kind of go through everything. Uh, Something that I see also too, many women in their menopause transition are having really heavier periods but they kind of brush it off because oh, it's heavy, but eh, maybe their periods were heavy before. And all of a sudden you find out that they have an iron deficiency anemia, mm-hmm. which could explain their fatigue. So it really needs to be, you know, some investigations here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, this question is from Julie, who says that um, she is finding running so hard during this phase of life. And she has, she complains about joint and muscle pain after exercise. And so she wants to know if that could be connected to, as she says, perimenopause. Yeah, a lot of people do describe joint pain during the menopause transition or early menopause. That's not uncommon. Mm. Uh, and we don't quite understand the physiology behind it. Um, muscle pain is something I've heard less of. And again, you know, that might be something to discuss you know, with your doctor just to make sure you're not on a medication or supplements can also be a cause of muscle pain. So you just want to make sure you're not taking some you know, over-the-counter supplement with multiple ingredients, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, joint pain definitely can be. And um, for some people that can improve significantly with menopausal hormone therapy and other people just like to know that it's not a sign of something else. Mm-hmm. But also keep in mind, people can also develop medical conditions and there are medical conditions that can cause muscle pain and joint pain, like fibromyalgia. So, you know, again, you know, probably discussing all those symptoms with a doctor is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Carla had a, had a similar question and, and I feel like you've, you've somewhat answered this. Uh, she's been having flexibility issues, tight muscles, tendons, ligaments, and she feels like once she gets a t- an issue resolved, 
she ends up with something else. Uh, and, and she says she feels like she's in healthy shape and does her warmups and stretching, but she's heard that perimenopause can cause all of these areas to really tighten up. So, it, you know, beyond a conversation with her doctor, is there anything else that she can do in addition to just keeping up the stretching? Yeah, um, I don't think there's really specific advice for, you know, for that. I think it's really just about, you know, again, making sure there isn't anything else going on medically and, um, you know, talking, you know, talking with her provider about, you know, all the different things that are going on and making sure that there isn't another medical condition. Um, and just, you know, sort of deciding how bothersome those symptoms are. And for some people they may be bothersome enough to be worth a trial of menopausal hormone therapy. And for other people, they may not be bothersome enough to try that. So kind of something to sort out individually one provider. I think from listening to these questions, having you answer them and reading them out loud, I'm suddenly like, hmm, it seems like we're all blaming perimenopause or menopause, like for like every ailment we have. And that I think maybe the takeaway should be that, you know, that we can't necessarily point the finger at menopause. So that's a big problem. So menopause is this, is sort of these two sides of a coin. I, either people have their symptoms completely ignored mm -hmm or every single thing is blamed on menopause. <laughs> and, you know, the, most are a mix, right, in life, just in general. And while there are some classic symptoms, you know, there are these other things that are sort of in the gray zone that are really well studied because we're all individuals and, you know, we're all a compilation of a lot of things. And, you know, especially, um, with so many variables, you know, diet quality, sleep quality, all these things that can have an impact, you know, it really takes, you know, a full history because as I tell people, you know, menopause happens while you're aging. Mm -hmm. If you start your menopause transition when you're 42 and you go through menopause at 52, you've aged 10 years. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I have to tell you something. I'm 54 and my joints when I run are completely different than they were 10 years ago, mm -hmm. completely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I didn't have any muscle problems or anything like that during my menopause transition, but I'm not blaming my sore joints now on my menopause. I'm, you know, it's probably cause I'm 10 years older. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So these questions, um, now relate more to, to menopause, um, rather than the transition. This one is from Jill and she said, besides sudden onset, are there any glaring differences between surgical menopause and natural menopause? And um, do you have to go about them differently, if at all? Well, I think, yes. Yeah. So it depends, first of all, it depends on the age. And so, you know, the younger you are and you have your ovaries out, the greater the risk, because the younger the age of menopause, the greater the risk of complications. But surgical menopause is associated with an increased risk of dementia, depression, heart disease, all of the complications of menopause. And we really strongly advise against removing I, I can't really stress that enough. So unless you have a medical condition, so if you have cancer, obviously it's worth taking your ovaries out because you want to survive the cancer. Everything in medicine is about weighing your risk and your benefit. Or say you carry a genetic mutation that increases your risk of cancer. Well, your life is going to be prolonged by not having that ovarian cancer and you know, by removing your ovaries, but these really high risk cancer situations aside, you know, oh, taking out the ovaries because we're just there or because there's a cyst, but the cyst clearly doesn't look like it's problematic. 
Um, these are things that to really be discouraged. And in America, we have a far higher rate of surgical menopause than other countries. And uh, certainly our life expectancy isn't longer. So it's not like taking out the ovaries is helping people. Hmm. Interesting. So another area that a lot of our community is really interested in is um, hormone replacement therapy. And Aaron's wondering, is it safe? And are there any herbal estrogen supplements that you would recommend? And is adding soybean products helpful for estrogen supplementation? So those are all sort of complicated questions with long answers, which I do address in depth in the book. So let me see if I can summarize some of them. So uh, from a soy standpoint, it doesn't make any difference. If you like soy, eat it. That's great. And if you don't, that's fine. You don't have to eat it. You know, uh, there are no studies that show that soy supplementation makes any difference. Mm -hmm. And I tell, you know, a lot of this data came from, you know, studies looking at people eating a traditional diet in Japan, but there's a lot of things that are different about people that are in another country, right? So they've been eating that diet their whole lives. They probably have a different microbiome. And one thing that people always forget is a traditional, you know, the traditional Japanese diet is also really high in vegetables and fatty fish, things that are really good for you, right? Mm -hmm. So if the soy is coming along, along for the ride with an amazingly healthy diet, of, of course, we're going to see people who are doing better. And if you compare, for example, the Mediterranean diet, which is also a very healthy diet and associated with longevity, it's incredibly low in phytoestrogens. And no soy in it. And so you have a completely different, a soy rich diet and a soy absent diet. And you have two people that are two groups of people that are thriving, living great lives. But again, the similarity between their diets is they're eating a lot of, uh, a lot of vegetables and a lot of fish. So, you know, if you like soy, great, eat it. But there really is no data to show that it's going to be helpful for you for menopause. Uh, from a supplement standpoint, um, most of them are junk and are untested. And people always give supplements a pass with this idea that, oh, it's a supplement, it's herbal, it could be safe. But you know, supplements are the number one cause of medication-induced liver failure. Wow. And many supplements are adulterated. Some of them even contain hormones because if you want someone to feel like the supplement's helping, if you doctor it with the ingredient that actually works, then people are gonna think your supplement's working, right? But now you're taking a hormone and you don't even know it. So it's all completely bio. And let me talk about three different supplements that are pretty common. So uh, one is a relizin, which is a, a pollen extract from, and there's some low quote one study. So just one study that shows that it can be helpful for hot flushes, but usually not for people who have pretty severe hot flushes, but it's a pretty benign medication. And if you want to try that, that's okay. And there's one, um, soy, pardon me, uh, one phytoestrogen supplement called S, which has been shown in some low quality data to maybe help with hot flushes. So that's another option. Uh, but again, you know, you, you're sort of the manufacturer's word that what's in there is what's in there. Uh, a supplement that's often recommended, but has actually no good data to support it is black cohosh. And uh, there are reports of liver failure with black cohosh. And in one study in the United States, 25% of samples of, of black cohosh didn't contain any black cohosh at all with other substances. And the researchers specifically, they were like, well, maybe when the black cohosh roots were being gathered, they accidentally gathered some 
the wrong roots like next to it. So it was sort of like a, a mistake that shouldn't have happened, but it was an honest mistake. Um, the, adult, the black cohosh was adulterated with plants that grow in a different country. Mm-hmm. So um, how would you feel if every time you opened a carton of milk, 25% of it, 25% of the time it was orange juice instead? Right. Like you wouldn't accept that. So, yeah. So, so that's, that's sort of a tour of supplements. Um, Anything that says ovary support or adrenal support is garbage and, you know, don't waste your money. Uh Uh, And as for menopausal hormone therapy, it's really very well tested. Um, There is a very increased risk of breast cancer. We're talking six per 10,000 women per year, if, you know, for the first sort of five or six years of being on it. It may go up slightly with longer duration of use, uh, but overall it's not associated with an increased risk of mortality. And there are benefits obviously with treating hot flushes, reducing osteoporosis, and it may help preserve muscle mass for some women and reduce the risk of colon cancer and type two diabetes. So for many women, especially if they use the transdermal therapy, which is the safest, it's a great option. Uh, there are low risk. They're not zero, but they're there. Uh, And it's good to know about all of the benefits and the rare risks so people can make a decision about their health that works best for them. Nice. Thank you for that detailed response. I know that's going to be really helpful to some people. So um, got two questions on the same topic. One from Stephanie and um, she wants to know, is there some secret recipe to losing weight after menopause or should I just come to terms with having a little more of me to love? (laughs) She said she had gone through the change within the last three years. And then Amy says that she's having trouble figuring out how to manage her weight and continue an active lifestyle. She says she's simply not getting results, simply cutting calories. And if she cuts them too much, she cannot function. So uh, she says what worked five years ago no longer works. It's frustrating. So I hear that. I I get that. Um, And as uh, someone put on a during the pandemic um, and is working on taking that off and who's 54, I appreciate that. Um, I'm actually working with a coach and a trainer who uh, specializes in uh, looking after women who are sort of perimenopausal and menopausal. And, you know, she has me doing most of the things that I would have done before, but she's keeping me honest. (laughs) But the thing that I'm doing different is I'm adding in the weights and building muscle mass. And, um, so that would be something to think about. I think for someone who is really struggling is, is to think about, you know, what they're doing from a resistance training standpoint, you know, is there a way to, to think about weights because the visceral fat, the fat that you put on during your menopause transition is very hard to lose. If you lose, if you gain visceral fat at any time in your life, it's harder to take off. It's this inflammatory fat and it sticks in a way that other fat doesn't, but studies do tell us that, um, that you can't, you know, that with, with sort of the combination of sort of calorie restriction and other things that, that you can make those gains, but, um, working with a trainer or someone who's got experience in the area might be something to think about. Nice. How did you go about you? How'd you go about finding that person? So, oh, um, so there's a wonderful uh, uh, woman named, oh my gosh, I want to get her name wrong, Amanda Thiebe, I think that's her name, Um, and she wrote a great book called uh, Menopocalypse uh, about her own menopause, and she's a trainer, she's a personal trainer, Uh, and so, uh, you know, she's a big advocate in into obviously for keeping yourself in the best of health. And I think through her, I found um, another trainer who specialized in that area. I sort of man and I kind of became friends. So I felt weird like working with someone who I was mm-hmm. sort of, even though 
just internet friends, but you know, you want someone to hold you accountable. You don't want someone who's, you're like, Hey, you know, slip inside there. Um, so I wanted someone who didn't like know me. So, uh, there was a trainer that, uh, you know, I sort of started following because of being friends with Amanda and I just really liked what she wrote on her Instagram and I liked the way she approached it. And I thought, okay, well, it sounds like her style resonates with me. And, uh, and so she works, you know, she does uh, coaching uh, remotely and um, that's, uh, that's uh, who I'm working with. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I've uh, taken off, I think seven pounds so far and it's, it's a slow process and the weights are, are, you know, it's new for me, mm-hmm. um, but I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. And I have a goal that uh, within a year, <laughs> I'm hoping to be able to do one pull up. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh, but uh, you know, I think I might take the rest of my life to be able to do that. So kudos to you for having that goal. Yeah, it's a, it is, it's Amanda Thebe. So yeah, so she's a personal trainer and um, you know, her whole, uh, her whole thing is um, helping women train sort of in the menopause transition and menopause. Um, and I, her book is fantastic, Menopocalypse and her Instagram's really inspiring. And uh, she's somebody I'd highly recommend. Nice, nice. So another area where women tend to have trouble uh, would be sleep. And so Claire says, I'm a 56 and six years menopausal woman. I still get some early morning hot flashes before I wake up and really struggle to get a good night's sleep, despite having a CPAP machine, which has helped a lot. So any advice on improving sleep quality and duration that you might have for her? Yeah, so... Somebody who has sleep apnea, you also want to make sure that, you know, that the sleep apnea machine is doing what it's supposed to, you know, the BiPAP is, you've got the right seal and you're getting the right outcome. You know, unfortunately, sleep quality does deteriorate a little bit with age for a lot of people. Um, But sleep certainly, um, you know, if people are having hot flashes at night, that can disrupt sleep quality. Uh, And I usually recommend that people people, uh, you know, think about if they're bothered with hot flashes or not. And if that's, if they seem to think that might be part of it, then a three month trial of something for hot flashes might be of value to see if it's actually the hot flashes that's disturbing your sleep, right? Cause you don't, you're not really sure while you're asleep. And so, you know, and there are a variety of different medications. Gabapentin is a really nice one. If for people who don't want to use hormones, because it's very good for hot flashes and it's good for sleep. Uh, people who don't want to take estrogen, they can just take the hormone progesterone that can also help with sleep, or they can take, you know, standard menopausal therapy. And there's also sleep clinics. I, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is highly effective. Um, and that's also something to think about too. Um, you know, sleep experts are invaluable and, you know, sleep medicine is its own specialty. Nice. Nice. Anything else you might recommend for hot flashes? It maybe ones that happen during the day rather than at night. Yeah. So in addition to the, um, you know, we spoke about, um, the, the -the over-the-counter, the couple of supplements and menopausal hormone therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy is highly effective for hot flushes. So that's just another option again, for someone who it really wants to pursue a non-medication alternative, you know, for some people taking a medication is just not in their personal gestalt. And so it's nice to have alternatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, also a couple of antidepressants can be very effective for hot flushes. And it's not that we think you're depressed, but this is, a a misfiring in the brain is what really is producing hot flashes. So it makes sense that medications that work on the brain 
could be used. Uh, so some of them are uh, paroxetine, uh, Lexapro, um, venlafaxine. Those are some of the ones that can be useful. And then as I alluded to earlier, the medication gabapentin, which is actually a drug for epilepsy, but we use it for lots of other things. Um, and pregabalin, which is similar to gabapentin in some ways. Uh, and those drugs can be very helpful for sleep. Interesting. So, I'm oh, sorry, very helpful for hot flushes. Mm -hmm. And, but gabapentin can be helpful for sleep as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Kathy has a question and she would like to know why the hair on her head is thinning, but the hair on her face is getting thicker and darker. Is there anything she can do about it? Yeah. The, so some women definitely do describe sort of increasing uh, hair loss in uh, sort of in menopause. And also there's hair loss with aging too. It's not something that's reversed with estrogen. Uh, so it's something that can certainly be triggered by menopause, but isn't treated with hormones. And that's something to really see a dermatologist about. Um, there definitely are treatments for thinning hair um, to think about, and they're the experts. And again, to make sure that you don't have a thyroid condition or something else that could be part of it. The sort of the chin growth on the hair on your, you know, elsewhere and stuff is again, those are, that's a little bit hormonally mediated. Um, and uh, the, the, loss of, the loss of estrogen can be kind of a cofactor in that. So um, yeah, but it doesn't seem to really stop with hormone replacement therapy because mine certainly happens. <laughs> I've got like four or five, like, you know, like, and the thing about these hair is that I think almost every woman has had this universal experience. You look, you look, it's not there. It's not there. It's not there. And then the next day it's like two inches long. <laughs> and you're like, where did that thing come from? I want to do time-lapse photography by my bedside at night. You know, <laughs> like, don't you think, doesn't it like, it's like it's hiding and then boom, overnight. It's like Jack and the beanstalk. <laughs> exactly. The magic beans. Oh my gosh. It's so funny. <laughs> because it's so this true. Become like a, it's become an obsession. Oh my God. It's an obsession of mine. I have like four chin hairs and I've like named them. And, um, and I'm like very, very upset. Cause this is the thing. Like if I can feel it, I will touch them like all day. I'll touch the little bristles. Like I'm just like, I'm obsessed with these four hairs. I should get electrolysis cause they're like living rent free, like in my face, literally. Uh, but yeah, but I'm fascinated by this fact that like they won't be there, won't be there. There'll be little, little, and then I'll look in the next day and I'm like, oh my God, I could break this. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, one of the silver linings of wearing a mask all the time, it's like <laughs> covers it all. I know. <laughs> I know. It's just, uh, yeah, but I, I actually think I might break down and get electrolysis on those four guys because, <laughs> um, because yeah, it's just there. I feel like I'm locked in a battle to the death with them. <laughs> <laughs> they're parasitic and they need to leave. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know, I, you know, and every, but you know what? You're laughing because you've got the same thing. Oh, I you sure have am. These magic hairs <laughs> that just like, where did that come from overnight? How is that possible? And, and how could you keep pulling something out and it just keeps coming back? How does right. you do that? Like, like what is going on in that one hair follicle? Like, is that one hair follicle? Like, I'm going to get you my pretty. When I was a, a kid, our neighbor had a couple really dark hairs coming out of just one spot on her face. And as a child, it was all I could look at. Like Mrs. Smith's face. I just was like, Wonk, I got to focus on those hairs. Until my mother was like, stop staring, stop staring. <laughs> so I have a theory. I have a big long-winded theory that is related to Snow White. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. 
So, um, so I think that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is like a big analogy of menopause, right? That the that the evil queen, right? She's losing, you know, <laughs> losing her faded beauty, and of course, you know, she the only way she can reclaim her power is by, you know, is by taking on her true ugly old woman's you know, with the apple and the Disney image, you know, that she's got the big pointed chin and she's got those big whiskers. Yeah. <laughs> she has what my mother told me is called a when, which is one of those little kind of witches bumps on your face. Um, yeah. yeah. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. Um, and it's symbolic that all, but one of the seven dwarves has a beard. So it's all sending that message right there. Uh, right. <laughs> just learned. Thanks to the New York times, mini crossword. Dopey is the only one who doesn't have a beard. Um, so, oh, that's right. Cause Dopey's all like young looking and, you know, and it hadn't occurred to me. I just was like, I don't know. I don't think so I had to like skip to the next one. And so I didn't pause or look up what Dopey <laughs> looks like. Yeah. 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 So, well, all right. Well, as long as we're, you know, in the oversharing, um, category, I guess we can't let you leave without talking about loss of libido during menopause. Cause boy, you know, I don't know. I think Daniel Craig could walk in here and I'd just be like, yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Well, really? So yeah, no, Daniel maybe Craig Daniel took Craig. you out yeah, for partic- dinner? Particularly because uh, the studio is our guest bedroom. So, you know, if he, I guess if he walked in here, it would, it would be, you know, a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So when he's in that suit that oh, yeah. looks like it was cut for his body mm-hmm. and he walked up to you and if he said, I've left Rachel Weiss for you. You are the most beautiful woman in the world. I've been looking at you from afar and I want to take you to the Malfi Coast for a month. And I just want to shower you with kisses and feed you with the riches of the Mediterranean every night and wine from this private vineyard. Nope. And I just walked past your husband to get into this recording studio. <laughs> you know, that it's good because these windows we have down here are egress. So we could just hop out right through the window. So yeah, I guess I would, but it's just, you know, I don't know, long time. So a lot of people have been sold a big mythology about libido and sex. They've been sold this patriarchal idea that you're hot and heavy for a dude all the time. You know, he walks in the room and you're like, Oh my God, let me strip my clothes off. And you know, that's what the movies would have you believe. And it's really fascinating to me that we watch the movies and we think that's how sex should be, but nobody watches like the fast and furious and thinks, well, that's how we should drive cars. (laughs) Right. So, but it's again, because we don't talk about sex, everybody learns driver's ed. So, you know, so you know that the driving in fast and furious is ridiculous, but since we don't have proper sex ed, we talk about pregnancy prevention. We don't actually talk about the realities of sex and the realities of desire. People get that information from unreliable sources, like the movies, like their friends, like women's magazines, like men's magazines, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like porn, like any, any TV show, you know, it's very rare to see a realistic depiction mm-hmm. of sexual relationship in any form of media. I mean, I'm sure it happens, but those ones usually aren't very popular. Mm -hmm. So what I tell people is that, and there's a lot of this in the book, is that desire can be receptive. And for a lot of women, that's how they are all the time. And sometimes it comes and goes. And receptive desire means you don't spontaneously think about it. You're not spontaneously initiating it. But when the opportunity presents itself, like, for example, Daniel Craig, Craig. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. all of a sudden, you can sometimes start to think, well, you know, maybe I'm going to give this a try. I might just see. Hmm. Yeah. So that can be receptive desire. So I think it's important for people to think about that is that, um, 
Desire has to be cultivated and people also have to learn to tolerate the lows in their relationship as well as the highs. And, and again, getting back to this, it requires cultivation. When I talk to people and, and they tell me, you know, they've got low desire, I'm like, okay, so tell me what you've done in the last four weeks to, to work on your desire. I don't hear anything. What have you done in the last four weeks to take your school activities? Or what have you done for working after hours, right? And you hear about like hours and hours of effort into that. And the more effort you put into things, the, the better the outcome. And so it's just important to remember that that relationships do require that kind of effort to put into it. And often by the time menopause comes along, people have sort of at this stalling point in their relationship that often have neglected their sex lives because they were super busy with kids and raising kids. And they sort of magically assumed that when their kids were like 14 or 15, then like things would just kind of resume how they were, but you know, you're, you're different. And at the beginning of a relationship, you're putting a lot of time and effort into it. So, you know, I talk about things in the book that can cultivate desire, what's normal, what's not. And, um, you know, but again, if you're having sleep issues or you have depression or other, you're feeling unwell, those things are going to affect desire too, or you have pain with sex that absolutely needs to be treated. Um, and so, you know, you, people can work through all of the things, uh, that, that can be helpful. And, and sometimes there are some medications if all of those things are the other things are addressed. Although generally the medications aren't really that effective and they're really not that much better than placebo. Placebo response is pretty high with those medications, but you know, it's people's bodies and their choices, but it's really important to try all those other things first. And if Daniel Craig taking you to the Amalfi coast in his NPL, you know, Navy sweater or uh, is something that you think you might be able to get on board with, um, then it's probably not a desire problem. It's a situation problem. Oh also, God. a really good thing is people need to engage in fantasy. I'm huge. I'm always fantasizing about my partner. I mean, sometimes he's like laughing about it, but but, you know, I'll imagine us meeting at different points in our lives or different things that, um, you know, to, you know, I find it's really fun to do that. Um, reading erotica. I mean, romance novels are, my partner just poked his head and he's so cute. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, reading romance novels, things that, you know, that turn you on, you, you've got to kind of stoke the fire a little bit. Uh, so, you know, reading some good erotica, that kind of stuff, you know, what are the things that used to get you going or try something new, buy yourself a new vibrator, um, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. Good. Well, we are going to end on that note to, to, you know, shoo people off of listening to podcasts and maybe, you know, jumping on somebody's bones. So yeah. Um, well, can I, can I give a good book recommendation for libido issues? Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. It's called better sex through mindfulness and it's by Dr. Lori Brado. Okay. And, uh, and it was really, um, really, she's, you know, one of the world experts in desire and libido and, um, and her books really, it will change how you think about it. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, good. Well, that, uh, so they need to be reading better sex through mindfulness as well as the menopause manifesto. Right. And, um, menopocalypse by, um, by Amanity. Yes. Very good. Very good. All yeah. right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jen. I know, um, women were just delighted that you were going to be our guest. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Woohoo! <laughs> I don't know about you, Sarah, but yeah. I want a menopocalypse party. 
You, all right. Uh -huh. I want I want this like this idea of crossing the Crimson Bridge with balloons. And one of my friends has like one of those inflatable guys that like you'll see outside of car dealerships. I want that. <laughs> A big red one. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know when the date will be, but everyone just needs to be ready. Let's oh. say somewhere in the next four years, <laughs> I'll be crossing that bridge. And I, I just want everyone there. I'll fly out to Chicago to join you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, that was, I love that conversation. So, um, all right. Well, folks, if you want a little bit more of Coach Liz in your life, maybe you can't wait for that party that she's planning, you can take part in our Become series, which we just launched. Um, and it is eight weeks long. It is techniques, training, tips, teamwork. There's a really cool t-shirt. And Coach Liz, along with her cohort, Jen Harrison, is the coach of the Become a Cyclist program. And there's also Become a Runner and Become a Trail Runner, which are coached by some other um, equally fabulous coaches. And so those all, the registration's open now at trainlikeamother.club. Um, if you click on that top hamburger menu in the top uh, left-hand side, you'll see it's right at the very top of it. So, um, and it all starts, the programs start June 7th because they're eight weeks long, as I said, and they go together so that you really feel like you're part of a team, even though it's all virtual. Um, so yeah, so check out trainlikeamother.club and look for our become series. And if you know, you feel it doesn't apply to you, then recommend it to a friend. And then, um, you can do like I did, which is, um, morph your, um, best running friend, like kind of from clay, you decide who you want to be with and then turn them into a runner and voila, you have a best running friend. Um, our podcast today was produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward from Sounds Like Pictures. Many happy miles. Mm -hmm.